season two of the Adult Children Voices Across America Speakers Meeting podcast. You can attend this meeting live on Thursdays at 6 p.m. Pacific Time using the Zoom ID 848-5208-0640, password 061120. For more information about adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, visit adultchildren.org. The following speaker share from Laura Marie was recorded on May 11th, 2023. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, So my name is Laura Marie. I am a grateful recovering adult child. Um, Very excited to be here tonight. It's an honor and a privilege to speak at ACOA. It's saved my life. Um, and this will be my second time ever qualifying, (laughs) um, and it's a long one, but, uh, luckily, um, I, I, I do enjoy, um, sharing my story. Um, and this is, this was my fourth 12 step program. I have 11 years sober in the beverage program. And, um, this was the one I feel like I was getting ready for because it goes so deep here that um, I needed like an incubator before uh, looking at some of this stuff, because um, I think if I had gone so deep too soon, um, I I don't know if I would have had the the skills to deal with it all. So the timing was perfect and I'm happy I'm here now. Um, So I'll start at the beginning. I am from New York City. I grew up in Manhattan. And um, I'll start at the very beginning. I was conceived in a college dormitory, um, an acting conservatory. My mom and my dad were in college. um, And my mom was 21 and my dad was 24 when I was born. And so I was unexpected. um, And... My dad wanted to marry my my mom, but her dad wouldn't let him marry her unless he gave up his passion for acting. And uh, so he said, well, I guess I won't be marrying your daughter then. And he went on to become a very successful actor. Um, And so I grew up from day one in two separate homes. And all I ever knew was my parents being apart. And the dysfunction um, began very young, um, but I think things really got very, very hard for me when both my step-parents entered my life. And then I had these two households that I was going back and forth from, from as long as I can remember. My dad got sober when I was six months old, and he's still sober today. And I never saw my dad take a drink, but he... Um, had a real rage problem. He was a rageaholic. So he put down the drinking and he he definitely continued to rage. Um, and he comes from a lineage, we come from a lineage of alcoholics. Um, and his dad violently beat him, like very, very badly. And my grandfather um, founded the New York Sex Crimes Unit and he was a famous detective sergeant. And my grandmother um, was a raging alcoholic and left my grandfather with five small children 
and moved to Manhattan from Brooklyn. Um, so the stress and the, the of my grandfather raising five young children by himself, um, he he raged a lot, and my dad got the brunt of it as the oldest boy in the family. Um, my grandmother went on to get sober. She was the first, so I'm third generation. Um, and she was an incredible grandmother. She made up as a grandmother what I didn't, uh, what she wasn't able to give her kids um, when once she had left home. And on my mom's side, there was just a lot of um, repressed anger. Um, I was actually born in Indiana um, because my mom had to move home at the time her parents lived there um, from to give birth. And she just grew up um, more in the Midwest. She's from Can she was born in Candace, and um, there was just like no one really talked about their feelings. And my grandfather was a rageaholic too, um, but like a very good churchgoer, and you know no one really complained. And um, but then he would drink and rage. So I'm the product of two parents who had active alcoholic raging parents. Um, and it's, I think for me, I didn't know that I could qualify for this program until I really understood it's not just about having grown up in an active alcoholic family, it's also dysfunctional, <laughs> dysfunctional families. And so being second jet, like being the child of people who were so severely, my mom was beaten as well. My dad was beaten. Um, I think they think because they didn't beat me, like that I was all right. And the way that my dad raged was like psychotic rage in my face, fogging the windows in the car. Like it was terrifying. It happened dozens of times throughout the course of my life. So I think that, um, you know, I don't want to get into too much of the story about the trauma. Today, I feel further away from it, but I really hung on to my story a lot. Um, I had a very bizarre upbringing with my mom and my stepfather. Um, they were spiritual seekers. And they took me to ashrams. They were in a bunch of different cults. Um, they had me praying to aliens when I was, you know, 11 years old. And I was in the back of, you know, um, Catholic school, having the other kids also pray to aliens, like really out there stuff, right, as a kid. Um, and then my dad and my stepmom were both sober. And I'd say that you know, just broad strokes without getting into too much specifics. Um, the biggest abuse that was done to me was just being told way too many adult things and being exposed to way too many adult things as a very young child. Like, you know, when I was um, nine years old, I was um, very inquisitive as kids normally are we have you know they ask a lot of questions and I hadn't seen my mom's side of the family for seven years and then suddenly we were there you know with them and I said you know what what's going on you know why didn't I see them 
And my mom told me the truth, which is that um, when I was two, apparently when I came home from a trip from visiting her family, um, I had a severe personality change and they had found blood in my diaper and they thought something terrible had happened to me. And so I wasn't allowed to see that side of the family again. And I was nine, you know, like, and then, and that her brother probably did it. And then I'm nine sitting at Christmas dinner with her brother, like trying to process what was just said to me, no therapy, no nothing, you know? So it was like that type of psychological abuse of being just, there was no barrier of like, maybe we should keep this to ourselves because the, a child cannot understand or process or comprehend what we're sharing with them, you know? And there was other, you know, examples of that. And we lived in, uh, and I won't spend too much time like in the muck, in, in the stuff that brought me here. Um, but, you know, for, for other people who have really intense stuff, um, you know, you're not, we're, we're not alone here. I'll just keep the focus on myself. Um, and I, I hope that um, in, in sharing, honestly, you know, the don't talk, don't speak, you know, I feel, let's put it this way. I, I get nervous talking about my story sometimes because I feel like I'm just too intense. Like, I feel like when I talk to people, um, I, I don't, and this is, this has been something that has been, um, I have found a lot of peace in doing this work where I don't overshare in public anymore. You know, my story, like my story is mine and it's not for everyone. You know, I'm in a safe place here, so it's different, but over the course of my life, I've gone through periods of time with feeling like I've made myself over vulnerable. And then I get like hungover <laughs> from like feeling like I overshared. Um, and so I've kind of trained myself like not to really uh, share certain things anymore. Um, but hey, this is a 45 minute podcast, so we're going to let it rip. Um, <laughs> so uh being told a lot of things. Um, my mom and my dad were not on speaking terms. My father tried to physically assault my stepfather um, and they got into a fight. And so um, it was rough. My mom and my stepfather were struggling actors, waiting tables, working odd jobs. And my dad was the lead on a hit TV series. And I just wanted to watch my dad on TV. And me asking that was like, not allowed, you know, like it was very, very uncomfortable. Um, and uh, they badmouthed my dad to me a lot. They said he was a narcissist because he would drop me off late every other, you know, weekend, stuff like that. And um, just a lot of poisoning, toxicity, and um, we lived in a one bedroom in Manhattan, um, in Yorkville. And I was in the bedroom and they were outside and they wanted to be able to have sex. And so I wasn't allowed to leave my room after nine o'clock. And this is like when I'm 10, you know, 10, 11. And I was a late night bathroom user. 
And I kept getting yelled at because I would leave to go use the bathroom because that's just the way my like internal bowels worked. And then my mom got yelled at me so much. I was whole, I wouldn't go to the bathroom and I'd be in such discomfort. I actually, um, use the bathroom in my room on a newspaper, um, to show them that I wasn't, um, trying to disobey. And that's the type of stuff that like, you know, like you're on a date and it's like, you're not going to share that story. Right. But it's just like (laughs) in my, in my adult relationships, you know, like, I don't really know, like, I'm like, I'm like a miracle that I've survived, you know, um, with some of the psychological stuff that I, that I lived through. And, um, I do believe, excuse me for one second, I'm dog sitting and he keeps barking. I'm just going to tell him to stop one sec. He's an Instagram celebrity dog, but he's a little high maintenance. Um, so I believe I turned out, um, all right, because I was so deeply loved by my, by my dad's mom, my grandmother, um, from, you know, one to seven, she watched me almost every day and she gave me stability. So my nervous system had that love. And when I do the inner child work today, I really feel connected to my grandmother as like a connection to a higher power. Now, fast forward, um, you know, a lot of other stuff happened and, um, I ended up, um, getting sober at 24, um, or 25, excuse me. And then I founded a company when I was 26 and, um, I got funding for that company. I, um, grew that business um, to over 30 locations in Manhattan and it became really big. And I completely recreated the dynamics of my childhood at work. And I completely played out the other side of the laundry list. Like I was the one who was the authority figure. I was the one who needed to be able to, um, control my environment to feel safe. And a lot of my achieving, I ended up being a very, um, a very, uh, very much an overachiever in the course of my life, like in the midst of everything that was going on with this, like, very severe um, psychological stuff. I was, you know, captain of the basketball team, A plus student, like, I just was like, I got to succeed because the adults in my life are crazy. And if I can't take care of myself, like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so that overdeveloped sense of being an adult and needing to succeed and needing to be able to take care of everything um, was something that I developed very young and Um, It was not until the pandemic when I lost that business and um, got some really honest feedback from the people who worked with me for years about how difficult it was to work with me um, that I really was 
like, wow, I don't have kids, um, but I recreated some of the, I had a bad temper, you know, the things like people were afraid of me. And I felt so much shame about having felt like I um, repeated the pattern. Like I thought I was going to be someone who was going to break the chain. And, you know, it wasn't on the same scale per se. Like I wasn't, I don't think I was like, I don't know, maybe some of them would have felt like I was psychologically abusive. I don't know, you know, but I don't know if it was like as overt as the stuff from my childhood, but the underlying thing was I, for the life of me, couldn't create stability. Everything was always urgent, a crisis, um, chaos. Um, I didn't know how to stick to a routine. You know, I kept changing the goalpost. I kept changing the business model. I kept, it was never enough. We just kept, you know, growing at any cost. It was just, and so I created a similar environment for the nervous system to what I knew. And it got to the point where my investors tried to remove me as CEO. And that was really hard. Like I felt like I was um, completely like it was, I felt like I needed that role to feel safe that when it got, you know, when they were like, we don't want you to do this anymore. I had an identity crisis really, you know? And so um, the pandemic um, did for me what I couldn't do for myself because I don't think I ever would have left that business. I would have been clawing my nails into it until the final days. And um, we lost 100% of our revenue when the pandemic hit and I, I had to say goodbye to that business. And then um, I started really, you know, digging deep into the inner work. Um, I found something called DBT, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, which has been life-changing for me. And um, the stress and the pressure that I recreated for myself um, in the business plus my actual childhood, which I think I was running from the whole time. It all just created this perfect storm where I had a complete breakdown. You know, I, I took a bathroom door and was bashing it into my head, um, you know, six months into the pandemic. Um, you know, I was suicidal. Um, I didn't want to live. And the perfectionist in me couldn't accept that I failed and that I couldn't force, like I couldn't will my way through the pandemic to keep my business alive. Like it was crazy. You know, it's like it's a global pandemic, like it's all right, you know, but like I internalized it in a way that was like so out of proportion. It was very clear there was other stuff going on. And so once the business was removed, it's been a three-year journey of, I think, really meeting myself for the first time. Because 
workaholism was my drug of choice. And when I no longer had that distraction, all the stuff from childhood, I feel like caught up with me. And I don't know if I ever had really fully processed it all. And um, I had gotten, I was in a relationship at the time. And I'd say that was my first qualifier besides my parents was my last relationship. Um, I so desperately hung on to this man for dear life. He did not want to be with me anymore. And I could not let go to the extent that he by accidentally text messaged me a screenshot and I was labeled spam in his phone. Like that's the name he put for me. And I saw that that's what his label was. And I was still like, oh, that's embarrassing to admit, right? But like, that's how far gone I was before I found this program. And so my self-esteem, my sense of self was so non-existent that when I didn't have the company to feel validated, I clung so hard onto this man for validation that then when I lost that too, it was like a very hard time, dark night of the soul. And I felt so much shame that it took me so long to get over this guy. You know, like I was still holding a, a torch for him until I finally got through the 12 steps here. <laughs> then by the end of that process, I was like, all right, like not meant to be, you know, but when I, I, I lived in California for a year during the pandemic when he and I had broken up and when I moved back to the East Coast, I wrote him a letter being like, I'm starting ACA and like this and that before I started the steps, no response, like shocker. Right. But like, that's how like codependent I was right. In terms of, of needing that validation. And I today, you know, to get, I'm going to get to the solution now. So, um, I went through the work with, um, a fellow traveler group and we went through the 12 steps and now we're almost three-fourths of the way through um, the Inner Loving Parent guidebook, which I absolutely love. And I think the most powerful thing about finding this program has been the ability to practice holding two truths at once, which is I can honor whatever it is that my inner family is feeling, my inner child, and honor that my parents are human. And like this forgiveness, the acceptance and change, like I can accept them and no longer want to continue the abuse cycle. And I used to think that Forgiveness meant I was saying it was okay. Like I like that that like forgiveness somehow got them off the hook. 
And I know how to hold a resentment. Like my family is really like we are world-class grudge holders. And learning how to live and let live, to have the gift of the experience that I went through to see that I could have very good intentions. I very earnestly wanted everyone that worked with me to have a great experience working with me. But I still recreated like <laughs> this very toxic and very not, not healthy environment. And so seeing that and being honest about my own behavior, the way that I had abused people, it gave me this ability to understand that my parents probably didn't mean to hurt me in the ways that they did and were very abused and broken and wounded people themselves. And I realized, oh shit, I can't forgive myself without also forgiving them. Like it goes both ways. And I think for me, like that was freedom because then I could, and then this wild thing happened about a year in when I was, I think on step 11 or 12, where I was like, wow, like once I really started to let go and forgive, it was like, it's so much easier to blame my parents than to face just the terror of being alive sometimes. Like just being alive and having big dreams and going out and doing the stuff that we want, like it's scary. It's scary for anyone, no matter what their childhood was. And my disease would take my story and my past and just wear it like this badge. I bathed in it, you know, and I, and I don't say that from a critical inner parent place, like to put myself down, like it just was a reality and something slowly started to like soften where I was like, okay, Laura, you don't have to be so hard on them and you don't have to be so hard on you. And like life is hard, you know? And that's, I think for me, where the inner loving parent came in. Um, Laura Marie for me is what my family calls me because my aunt is also Laura. So I'm Laura the second. So they all call me Laura Marie. And getting in touch with Laura Marie, which for me is like me being more gentle, like with my inner child has been a really hard process. Like I come from a Brooklyn Irish family and we are very black coffee. And they're like, you know, oh, you're feeling like, like, not like that, like so taunting, like they're, they've got a high threshold because my gen- we're sensitive beings and like they have to sit and hold space, but no one holds held space for them, you know? So it's like, they look at us and they're like, what trauma? Like, shut the fuck up, you know, like they don't get it, you know, like, and so it's been, um, a journey to learn how to talk to myself nicer. Like my, my grandma, my great grandma used to make my dad 
and his cousin fist fight against each other and whoever won she'd say was her favorite like that's demented you know to do that to like seven-year-olds you know so inner loving parent to me felt like you know what I'm gonna have like a pansy taking care of me you know like that's how my my inner critic is like like oh who's this inner loving parent you know like like what a weak wall flap like oh the inner loving parent you know so I had to deal with a year of like self-taunting myself and I did this work today because we're up to page 93 um, in the guidebook and it asks you to write um, a help wanted ad for your higher power and it was fun to do that and then on question five, it says, ask your inner critical parent what it would be like for them to believe you're not alone, that a higher power supports you to lovingly parent your inner family. And I did this cool thing this morning where I invited the inner critical parent to retire like to go into retirement, like what would it be like for you and her critical parent to go travel the world? Like, <laughs> like we got it, like we're okay over here, you know, like what would it look like for you? And then I started, I started like doing the, this writing process where I was like, well, you know, I feel like my higher powers, like the chairman of the board, my inner loving parents, the new CEO, and like my inner family's on the board. And then I was like, okay, inner critical parent, like you can be a board advisor, a, a board observer, but you're not allowed to talk. And then I was like, no, that's so toxic. If you're retired, you don't come to the board meetings anymore. Like you go on vacation, you know? And it was funny because, you know, having this kind of just inner dialogue, you know, with it was, um, it was cool. Like I got to say, thank you. Like, thank you for trying to keep me alive. Thank you for trying to um, make sure that out in the big old world of New York City, I wasn't gonna get taken advantage of. No one's taken advantage of me, okay? Like my inner critic like is 10 steps ahead, is running game theory on you playing me. You're not gonna play me, you know? And in some ways, for the business I was in, I was in the real estate business, bunch of big personalities with these like real estate tycoons and that inner critic, you know, pushed on through and got the deals and did the stuff, you know, but it it's, uh, it's not really conducive to like healing. Um, thank you. I see that. And I didn't realize because I've done a lot of spiritual work too, before I got here. I, you know, I was, I, I had a very big spiritual practice meditation and yoga and soul cycle and, you know, every, like anything you could think of, I've tried it, I've done it, you know, I thought I had self-awareness. I thought I knew what, what this voice was so part of me. I didn't even know that I had an inner critic. 
which feels embarrassing. Like, of course, everyone has an inner critic. And it's like, no, not me, you know, like, and the process of going through this work and just de-thawing in here, it's just been like a lot, you know? And so the gentleness breaks and the bond with the other women, I, I do the, the work in a woman's group. Um, there's five of us and we go through the work together every week. And um, I've been with these women now, you know, we're going on two years, same women. And it's the bonds we've made and how safe we are. And um, it's, it's, uh, there's something powerful and magical about the 12 steps um, and, and not being alone. And I think as a, as a adult child of very, very dysfunctional family and intergenerational alcoholism, it's so easy to isolate. And it's so easy to think that my brokenness, that I'm so damaged, that I'm never going to be like anyone else, that when I came in here and I realized other people have been through just as bad or if not worse stuff, and that the courage it takes to no longer be so identified with these aspects of my story and my past because they have been heard, they have been honored, they have been brought into the light. And an inner loving parent to me today, it's setting the boundaries within myself that I never had. And so because I was very known, like my whole family knew kind of what was going on at home. I learned how to manipulate. Like people always felt bad for me. And I kind of learned how to like operate and maneuver. And I fill the space. My trauma response is sometimes I'll fill, I'll suck the air out of the room. And this has been unlike anything I've ever experienced before. So I saw my dad two weeks ago for lunch. The car is not a safe place for me and my dad. He has yelled at me historically in the car. And he's in family therapy with my stepmom and my three half siblings. And he's, you know, done a ton of work on himself. And he's, you know, a much safer person for me today than he was when I was growing up. But it still it gets a little like, um, uh, it's, it's a wild card, you know, we're both sick on the same day. It gets real bad, real fast. Um, and Today, what I do, this is what I do with my inner loving parent. I pre-process. I say, okay, we're about to go into a situation that could feel unsafe. And I don't let my inner child go places without an adult chaperone. So I consciously set inner loving parent, you need to drive 
because little Laura gets really sensitive and wants her dad's validation, right? And so I successfully navigated this lunch with my dad and didn't take the bait, didn't have the same old reactions as I used to. And I was able to be both an adult as a present, as my inner loving parent, and hold like side by side, have my inner child right there, like worshiping her dad, <laughs> you know, like just wanting to be loved and validated. And I was able to validate myself internally. I didn't have to say anything to him. I don't need him to do anything to be okay today. I want him to. It would be nice, right? But it's not a requirement for my happiness or freedom today. And that is the gift of this program. And since then, he and I have had like a very nice kind of like we spoke on the phone today. And um, he started family therapy with my brothers and sisters and my stepmom about a year and a half ago. And he forgot to tell me. <laughs> so for my inner child, who never felt like they fit in fully with, with them, you could imagine how triggered I was, you know, at that. I felt so it was like a whole big thing that I was left out of family therapy. And, blah, blah, blah. and today I was able to, again, ask my inner loving parent to be present. And I was able to advocate for myself without my inner teen talking. Because when my inner teen talks to my dad, it doesn't go well. Like my dad does not respond well at all. And I realized from a conversation I had with my dad earlier in the week, that 14 year old me was so pissed off that I was left out of family therapy. Every time it comes up, I revert back to 14. I get taken over. And so I woke up the next morning and I was like, oh, it was when I was 14 because we moved from, he lived in Westchester for a couple of years and I had my own room. Then he moved to Riverdale. I had no room and I was 14 going into high school and I had to sleep on the couch, the pullout couch. So it was that experience of time of having no privacy, being a young woman, becoming a woman, not having that feeling left out of it. Like it was like, I have no place here. And when I was able to see that, something just shifted to acknowledge that 14 year old part of me. And then I was like, oh, okay. That's who has been so upset by this whole thing. And I spoke to my dad today and I didn't need to explain all that. I didn't. I just said, you know what, dad? I would like to do family therapy with you and my mom. Today, they're close friends. That's a whole other story. It was very bizarre when they like became friends for me, but now they're best. They're very close friends today. God bless. And I said, I don't need family therapy with, you know, like that's your guys thing. If you want me to come back at some point, cool. I don't need family therapy with my stepdad. You know, I'm, I'm not on speaking terms right now because he's not a safe person for me. I love him from a distance and he knows I love him, but um, that's going to take some time because uh, that's a whole other thing. 
And I said, but you know what? I was able to advocate for myself today. And I said, you know, little, and he did a, he did this program 20 years ago. And so he knows the vocabulary when I explained to him. And I said, um, I think that's what little Laura needs. Like she just needs to be in space with my two parents. Like, that's what I need. I don't need the other, like we need our own family therapy when I'm done with this and loving parent guidebook and I have my toolbox and everything. And he said, sure, okay. And then I spoke to my mom and I said, you know, mom, I'd like to do, sure, no, yeah. So like, that's my inner loving parent advocating. And I don't need them to necessarily say anything. That's what I'm doing to show up for my inner child to say, okay, like just having the two people that created me be willing to go through a process in the fall or whenever. I'm not really in a big rush per se. That's huge. And the best thing that I, the best metaphor I could say before I started really doing the inner loving parent work to now is that things did not roll off my shoulders before. I would feel like I would get knocked over all the time, or I wouldn't know what was going to knock me over. And I was so easily triggered all the time. I felt like I was constantly managing being on the verge of a panic attack and not knowing why half the time. Today, you know, I may, I may get a little like, whoa, that, you know, I, I'll get a little shaken, but I'm not like flat out getting knocked over by everything anymore the same way. And that I believe is the result of one week at a time doing the step work and doing the the guidebook work, just continuing in the process, even though it was so, I I felt like I was walking through cement sewage mud my first year here. And I just kept going and had to let go of needing to do this program perfectly because I wanted an A plus, you know, I want, I wanted to do this. And like, this is a program where you kind of have to learn how to settle into it. Easy does it, but do it. And today where I'm at, is trying to ask God to please help me dissolve ego, egoic behaviors, defense behaviors, these kind of repellent-like behaviors that kept me, you know, I used to keep safe before, but in the world really just like keep stepping on people's toes and not knowing what I did. And So for me, it's like the inner loving parent. I can't try to fix my way out of this. This isn't a program where we come to fix ourselves. I don't, I can only speak for myself. I can't come here and fix myself. I really can come here to love myself. And it still kind of makes me want to vomit a little to say, you know, I'm still early in my journey, but I know that that's the solution 
is to take loving actions today. And that being loving and gentle is the biggest strength there is. The vibrato, the violence, the, you know, that like animal side of just savage. It has a place in the boxing ring with gloves on, like for cardio, but not in how I speak to myself or others. And I am excited to see what continues to unfold. I feel like I'm, you know, the tip of the iceberg is like in the water now. Like we've melted off the top of the berg and I'm now like fully submerged, but there's still like this big chunk. But I like, it's starting, it's like it's melting. The love is there. And uh, my tolerance for how good can I take it as well is starting to increase um, as my nervous system finds a new pattern of regulating what safety means. You know, it is safe to be loving and kind, rage and chaos and all that. It's what I knew and it's what I thought was safe, but it's not safe. So I'm, I have so much more work to do here, but I'm so grateful to be here. And thank you so much for listening to me speak for 45 minutes. A great audience. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>